Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the federal seat of Gilmore and the role of voter preferences in parliamentary representation. I'm joined by two guests this evening. My first guest is Osman Chu. Osman is the Secretary of the New South Wales Fabians and editor of the Labour Left magazine Challenge. Os, welcome. Thanks for having me. And my second guest is Dr Jill Shepherd. Jill is a lecturer in politics at the Australian National University and her research focuses on public opinion and political behaviour in Australia. And she's joining us from Canberra. Welcome, Jill. Hey, Ben. We're recording on Tuesday night and right now the Australian Bureau of Statistics estimates that the population of Australia is 24,999,790 and they're estimating that uh, the country's population will crack 25 million at about 11 o'clock tonight. Um, As Australia's population has been growing and growing faster in the last few years, it's also been getting more diverse, but our parliament isn't necessarily keeping up, which brings us to our first topic. So... Uh, we're going to be discussing some research from uh, Jill and some of her colleagues at uh, ANU. This research surveyed over 2,000 Australian voters and asked them to choose between various fictional candidates in head-to-head contests. And each candidate was assigned various attributes, their gender, ethnicity, incumbency, their party affiliation and other features. This research gave us a bit of a sense of what what attributes are important for voters when they're, when they're deciding who they want to vote for. Jill, what was the biggest findings of this research? So what we thought we'd find, right, is that there'd be some kind of ethnic dimension and that was what we were really trying to kind of look for was um, when you have co-ethnicity, so like shared ethnicity between a voter or a hypothetical voter and a candidate, uh, you know, a hypothetical candidate in this case, that say an Asian-born respondent might be more likely to support an Asian-born candidate, right, that when you see yourself represented in, you know, in a hypothetical election, you're going to back the candidate that looks like you. What we found was that it really doesn't matter. What does matter, and, you know, this is really interesting, is that uh, female voters really like female candidates. It doesn't really matter about the ethnicity, right? To the extent that it does matter about ethnicity, it's that white voters, white Australian voters, like white Australian candidates over other you know, minority candidates. So what it kind of does is, I guess, on one hand, it it really sort of depressingly um, it reinforces that white legislator kind of mainstream position that, that there'll be a dominance in the future. But then this thing about gender representation is really interesting, right? We know that parties on both sides of, of politics in Australia are pretty loath to put up, particularly, I think, potentially controversial female candidates. We know from a lot of uh, other literature that all voters, male or female, judge uh, female candidates and female politicians more harshly than male politicians. They uh, have different expectations of their kinds of leadership styles and that uh, female candidates have a sort of a higher barrier to face or or to pass in terms of seeming authentic. So they're all sort of the supply side issues, I guess. But what we're starting to see from this and a bunch of other studies that have been conducted similarly, particularly in the US, is that voters, like on the demand side, there's a real push for for more female candidates. So there's just a real mismatch. Yeah, and uh, we discussed in a previous episode of the podcast uh, some much more simplistic research that I had done looking at uh, the the where women tend to be running as candidates, um, and the, what, what we found was that a Labor Party is is actually doing a pretty good job of running women in when they're 
for any seat that's like an non-incumbent seat. Mm. Uh, and they're getting better amongst the incumbents. But what was interesting amongst the Liberal Party is their their marginal seat candidates who are not incumbents tend to be pretty evenly distributed, whereas the the, the non-incumbents running in safe seats are almost entirely male. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if that tells us something about they have a sense that um, female candidates perform just as well or possibly even better than men in head-to-head contests. So when it's marginal, they put them up. But when it comes to a safe seat, other kind of internal factors override that. Oh, so I also just kind of wonder about the role of things like, you know, affirmative action in Labor versus the coalition. Um, so, you know, if you go back to before affirmative action was introduced into the ALP in 1994, um, the level of female representation in both parties was pretty similar. Um, so I think the ALP in 94, it was about 14.5% of federal MPs were women. Um, and if you look at it today, it's about 47% of the federal caucus. Yep. Um, in 94, the Liberals had a similar number of female MPs, so about 13.9%. And now it's only 22.6%. Um, so it's played like there is a – I kind of wonder how, whether that's also played a huge role. Oh, a massive role, right? I mean, I'm increasingly convinced that our major parties are pretty slack on this kind of stuff, that they need to be sort of drag-kicking and screaming to – getting anywhere, you know, even approaching equity and this kind of stuff. The Labor Party, as you say, Oz, was pretty early to move on this. And a lot of that came from, you know, internal um, internal machinations, I guess, and um, and infrastructure, you know, institutional infrastructure like Emily's List who can back this with resources and, you know, and really lobby hard for these, for these kinds of changes. Within the Liberal Party, there's no demand for this kind of stuff at all. The one really interesting thing that we see from this is that, from this experiment that we ran, was that across almost every subgroup of respondents in this survey experiment, female candidates were significantly more popular, right? Even when Bondant was, say, a Labor Party identifier and there was a Liberal Party uh, female candidate, that they would defect from their party to in order to support the female candidate. Among almost every subgroup, except for conservative males, right? Liberal Party leaning men don't, didn't want to bar a female candidates. They're significantly less likely to uh, support female candidates in a lot of these contests. So there's, you know, to the extent that the Liberal Party is run by conservative men, it doesn't really surprise us, right, that they're taking a little while to find their feet. Actually, Jill, one question I did have was about, you know, of the female voters um, you interviewed and was there a difference between those who worked and those who did not work? Ah, oh, that's a really interesting question. We haven't looked at that. Do you think that there would be differences? Well, I mean, there was a study that was done by an academic, Anne Wren, um, looking at um, the growing service economy. And one thing they did find was that um, the change where, where women once were more likely to support centre-right parties and now more likely to support centre-left parties, really tracks um, with growing um, female labour force participation. So I just think that that would be something really interesting to find out, you know, is part of the difference because women are going into the workforce and are sort of supporting left-leaning parties who are also pre-selecting more women if there's if it all ties together. 
Oh, I reckon it does, right? I tend to think about it more in terms of education. I hadn't thought about it much more in terms of workforce participation or anything like that. You know, this is something that always surprises my undergrad students at the ANU is that, you know, when you tell them before Gillard in Australia, women consistently voted, were more likely to vote for the coalition than for the ALP. You know, that there was a genuine gender gap, but it went the opposite way to, to how most you know, particularly sort of younger millennial, dare I say, no, that doesn't work because I'm millennial, you know, kind of um, Gen Z kind of uh, students, they just didn't know that this was a thing. And Gillard's prime ministership here, and, you know, and I confess that I didn't appreciate it enough at the time, was such a turning point in so many things. But one thing that it did do here is, is like reversed and then reversed that gender gap such that, Women were more likely to vote for uh, for the ALP in two thousand and ten, um, and to the extent that that's been reversed, it's only gone back to basically even, right? So there's almost no gender gap at the moment between uh, the coalition and the ALP in terms of you know women and female voters. That's a huge thing, right? We are we were really really slow to catch up to the rest of the world in that. And it just took one female prime minister. I don't think I realised that it was such a recent phenomenon that that change happened uh, in terms of, like, I knew that there had been a, a long-term shift, but uh, was it really, like, as recently as, you know, Kevin Rudd the first time around, there was still a, there was still a kind of a, a gender bias, women in favour of the Liberal Party? Uh, Rudd sped it up, sped up, you know, um, I guess, you know, diminishing that, that gender gap, um, a lot of things happen in 2007. It's a really interesting election. I mean, that sort of yeah. seems like the most self-evident thing in the world to say, right? But when we look back, mm. um, rates of satisfaction with democracy, rates of trust in politicians, women vote, like female voters' um, satisfaction over a heap of different dimensions was really improved, even under Kevin Rudd. And this is the other thing that mm. my students always find hard to kind of get their heads around is that, you know, we loved Kevin for a little while, right? He was, you know, he was going to be our saviour. Well, there was a minute for Mark Latham too. I, I'm just old enough to remember that and um, I'm sure that the 20-year-olds today can't comprehend that that was ever a thing. I was working in the I was working in federal politics in the 2004 election, right? It's terrifying now when we look back. My, my students have got no concept of that. They just see Latham as Latham today. So Rod was sort of getting there. And, you know, to be fair, uh, Latham did give, um, did really push uh, the ALP back a little bit in terms of reducing that gender gap in voters. Um, Kevin Rudd sped it up again, and then Gillard really drove it home. I'll tell you something really interesting, you guys. Um, in We've always seen in Australia and in other countries a gap in political knowledge, right? So how much people know about politics, and it's always factual kind of information about our institutions and our political history. Men always score better than women. There's lots of reasons for that. In 2010, mm. under Gillard, women respondents, female respondents to the Australian election study scored better than men. They tuned in. It was amazing. They were more more informed about politics. Yep, just for a very brief time. And then in 2010, it went back to men having better information about politics. Shifting off the... Sure. Um, you're looking at gender. Just some questions about your findings on cultural diversity, just because it's been one of the issues I've been thinking a lot about. Um you know, given your findings, I kind of wonder 
for parties, if they see this, they see less electoral incentive to select candidates from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Like at, at the moment, if you look at representation in in politics generally, those from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds are underrepresented in politics. So I think the recent Leading for Change report had, you know, those with non-European ancestry in Australia at like 21% of the population. Um, but if you look at federal parliament, it's only 4.1%. And I kind of wonder about if there really isn't this push from culturally diverse communities, really parties won't see an incentive to, you know, put people up. Yeah, absolutely. So so we expected that there would be uh, some sort of demand side um, attraction, I guess, for um, cultural and linguistically diverse candidates. We thought that particularly, um, you know, first-generation migrants in our sample of survey respondents would like candidates who were, you know, similarly sort of co-ethnic. Um, we didn't find that, as I said. What we did find is that white voters like the retention of white candidates. So this that sort of threw a spanner in the works, I guess, you know, in terms of where we thought we would be going with this particular study and this and, and the papers that will come out of it. Um, I thought that the problem would be in the supply side, that it's that it would be an institutional kind of um, structural, uh, maybe not inability, but unwillingness for uh, our major parties to boot up diverse candidates. But it just seems that there's not much... You know, there's there's not much sort of demand for it from voters, as long as we hear from white voters predominantly. You know, Anglo kind of white appearing, I guess, voters. The parties aren't going to be shifted on this. I'm pretty scathing of our party's ability to innovate in many regards, and I think this is going to be one of them. Right? It's going to have to come from the parties. The parties will have to say this is okay. You know, we actually want a parliament that represents that better represents our uh, our population you know on, on any number of descriptive measures it's not going to be a case i think on this dimension where voters are leading the parties it'll have to be the other way around well, i mean like in if you look at overseas that parties do do that so if you think of the uk for example they have labor has held black and minority ethnic shortlists where they only have candidates from particular backgrounds so i think recently they held an a black and minority ethnic women shortlist. So mm. essentially all the candidates had to be, you know, black and minority ethnic and women. Um, and I think the Conservative Party had their A-list back in the day trying to include diversity, increase diversity and in putting people into specific seats. You do see a little bit of, like, there, there are there is a little bit of diversity amongst the candidates that tend to be put up by the Labor Party, but... Uh, it's not a particularly strong, um, and I mean the Australian Labor Party, it's not a particularly strong effort. Uh, and it's often usually into the upper house. Yeah. Quite mm. often when you have that diversity being represented. Absolutely. One of the theory I have, which I wonder about in terms of um, why you, you don't see that element of wanting to vote for someone who looks like you amongst um, sort of non-white communities is, you know, you compare us to the US where the the there are large racial blocks uh, that 
are non-white and they tend to I, I would tend to think that like the hispanic community or the black community overall is a larger proportion than any of the individual communities in, in australia that's not white and i do wonder if there's an element that like there are districts in america that are majority hispanic majority black and indeed that's something that has been created through the voting rights act um and those communities are large enough that you can you can imagine someone from that community winning whereas my experience certainly my experience from living somewhere like Parramatta, which is very much not a majority white community, but the the non-white communities include an Indian community and a Chinese community and those sort of groups. And that if they don't see a commonality amongst themselves, I can totally imagine people thinking, well, sure, there's a lot of people in this community who are not white, but I don't feel a particular, you know, if, if someone's Arab, they may not feel a particular attachment to someone uh, whose background is Chinese or something like that. I kind of also wonder whether the the, the way pre-selections work also plays a role. So, I mean, you, you raise the US an exa- as an example, mm. but I just think of a country like Canada, which is more similar to us being a parliamentary system, a federal system, you know, having single-member electorates. And the way they select is a much more open process where people are signed up to vote in pre-selection. So it's very much you have to engage the community. And when you look at you know, the Canadian parliament, um, it's just far more representative of the population even. So I think in Canada, about, you know, 13.6% of federal MPs are from a visible minority, who are, mm. are a visible minority, mm. so non-whites. Mm. And if you look at demographically, that's, you know, Canada's pretty similar to Australia and they're doing far more and far better than we are considering all the similarities we have so are you arguing that part of the thing here is about like openness of pre-selections and party processes? I think that definitely there's a role in it. Um, I, I don't think you can just say it is you know, a single factor. It, looking at the range of countries, like Australia does worse than pretty much every comparable, you know, Westminster democracy that we would compare ourselves to. We do worse than New Zealand. We do worse than the UK. We do worse than Canada. Um, you know, all parliamentary systems, they also all have different electoral systems. Mm. So you kind of wonder, you know, why is that? Yeah, I think Oz is onto something there, right? That there is something to be said for this idea of a, of a you know, a large sort of relatively homogenous block of migrant um, Australians, right? That, we, you know, we do have increasing numbers of Chinese-born Australians. We've got increasing number of Indian-born Australians. Uh, we've had, you know, big migration waves in the past, obviously. But there's probably never been a geographic or even a cultural kind of concentration that we've seen, say, in the States. But, you know, it's a cracking point about um, Canada, right? Canada can do this. It it needs institutional um, backing and it needs institutional will. I think one thing that the Canadian parties do really well, you know, and there are plenty of people and plenty of cases, I guess, in which, you know, I'm proven wrong on this point, but something that's at least interesting about the Canadian parties is the extent to which they're decentralised. So federal and provincial parties are, um, you know, informally kind of aligned, but uh, there's no sort of overarching conservative and overarching left-wing party. They're, um, you know, they're all over the shop really. And while that has sort of problems for party organisation and for, you know, policy kind of um, consistency and all kinds of things, it also allows for some pretty cool innovation. And I think that's something that Canada's done really well in this case. Coming back to, to gender representation, I also do wonder, like, 
when I read the research that you did, Jill, it does it does strike me that there's possibly an electoral advantage to running women for parties, and that may explain why partly why there are more women running in marginal seats, although it does also partly just reflect that once you're in a seat, if you're in a safe seat, you tend to stay there for longer and thus maybe maybe we're just seeing a bit of a lag, particularly on the Labor Party side in that regard. Uh, but it makes me wonder as well that if we lived in a system that was more primary focused and uh, individuals like had to face an electoral test even to win a safe seat, whether we would see a bit more of the women doing well in those safer seats. I don't really know. I mean, we don't necessarily see it in the Republican Party in the US. Well, I kind of wonder the comparison in Australia might be looking at Hare Clark elections. Like I think for the ACT, like Hare, despite the way not being a primary, it effectively is a primary where you have a range of mm. candidates from a party competing against each other to get elected. Um, and from recollection in you know, the ACT, it's like a majority female parliament. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely um, right. I mean, Hare Clark is such a nice kind of electoral experiment because you do get to put, um, I guess you do get to see the, um, the you know, what sort of candidate versus candidate um, contest along all these range of, you know, range of dimensions. You can almost um, isolate, you know, the effect of being a female candidate with name recognition um, versus being a male candidate with name recognition within the same party. I mean, you can you can sort of treat it like a little hothouse, right? And we do see exactly what we would expect. You, know, you do see more female candidates. You see greater diversity of, of ideological and kind of community-based candidates, all of the things that we expect from a, a multi-member district system, right? On the, on the gender thing, I was really struck when, when we analysed these data um, I thought, you know, I'm pretty cynical about a lot of research and I thought, oh, we've stuffed up the code. You know, surely this is male candidates that are having the positive effect. And I tweeted about it at one point and, um, and a, a guy I know at Yale University in the States emailed me and said, hey, can you send me that data? Cause, oh, can you send me your findings? Because I'm putting together um, a sort of um, hand-wavy, you know, really quick and dirty meta-analysis of a bunch of these survey experiments and almost all of the ones that he's found published and non-published have got this positive effect of being female, right? And this is, you know, mostly US-based but across presidential and parliamentary systems, you know, open primaries, closed primaries, all of these things, voters seem to really like it. So I think this will be sort of something that comes out of political science in the next five-ish years, you know, sort of trying to get it. Uh, what's underlying these like really like significant and strong pro-female candidate attitudes? So the same week after we discussed uh, the Liberal Party uh, and women back on our first episode, Five Thirty Eight on their politics podcast and on their website discussed the role of women in the Republican Party in the US and the kind of lack of women representation. And one of the things that it found is that. Uh, Within particularly conservative districts, very conservative women are often judged as being less conservative or less reliably conservative or less trustworthy by Republican voters and uh, have this kind of price they pay kind of regardless of their other politics, which I do wonder about even if overall in the population as a whole we see a positive uh, advantage for being a female candidate that may not apply amongst a conservative voter bloc. Um, 
Or maybe uh, that maybe that just applies within parties themselves, which might explain why the Liberals don't pre-select as many women. Yeah, or amongst just the kinds of people who vote in primaries, uh, which is a minority. One other thing as well I noticed is that uh, the Tasmanian Parliament, the Tasmanian lower house, also is majority women, but uh, there's... The, the governing Liberal Party is a long way from majority women. There's, there's a lot more men in that party, uh, but there's so many women in the Greens and the Labor Party that overall it produces a majority parliament. So, again, we see even in that system where uh, it's a little bit more open, although the Liberal Party still has a lot of control over who they run, that uh, you see overall a lot of women but not that many women on the Conservative side. I think a lot of it comes down to sort of first principle um kinds of ex- expectations on the you know on female and, and male candidates right and this is um this is sort of a big thing in in feminist politics that and the study of feminist politics that women do face the challenge of having to overcome preconceived notions of of what a leader is right and that females who uh, you know female candidates who do become politicians can largely overcome those barriers but until you do that, you're still seen as, as you know, potentially inauthentic or, you know, what are you really here for? Are you trying to sort of play act as a leader? You know, we don't quite buy it. And that's strongest among conservative men. So, you know, to my mind, that just explains the real sort of recalcitrance on the part of, of you know, sections of the Liberal Party in, um, in, in endorsing. And then once you've endorsed female candidates, really embracing them. Moving on slightly, uh, the one of the seats where there's been an interesting dynamic around gender representation is the seat of Gilmore on the south coast of New South Wales. Um, what we're going to be doing over the next few episodes is we're going to be picking one seat every fortnight to profile and to dive into that seat and have a bit of a discussion. And we're going to start this week with Gilmore. Uh, the seat of Gilmore covers parts of the New South Wales south coast, stretching from Kiama down to Maria. It also covers Nowra, Batemans Bay and Ulladulla. Liberal MP Anne Sudmalis won the seat in 2013 uh, and she held on with only 0.7% in 2016. Uh, and so there was a lot of rumours about her losing her pre-selection before the upcoming election and just to the point where her pre-selection was coming up, uh, there was a lot of controversy around the seat of Ryan in Brisbane where the, the sitting Liberal MP uh, for that seat uh, was deselected, and then we saw Scott Morrison and uh, and Malcolm Turnbull jump in on Sudmalis's behalf, which uh, makes you wonder a little bit about whether this is a case of the Liberal Party trying to trying to work a little bit within the structures they have to to address the inequality amongst their ranks, or at least prevent it from becoming any worse. Um, so Sudmalis. Uh, replaced Joanna Gash, who'd been the MP for a long time, and Gash around the same time switched over to becoming the Mayor of Shoalhaven, which was an interesting change. You don't see it very often, a federal MP becoming a local councillor. Um, but uh, but generally, Sudmalis has been seen as unpopular, and in 2016, we saw Gash lose uh, the mayoralty of Shoalhaven to a Greens councillor, which was a, a bit of a shock result. Um, what, what do you, what, Oz, what do you find most interesting about Gilmore? Uh, I think there's a few interesting elements about the seat. Um, so I think one thing is both candidates, um, the Liberal and the Labor candidate, are actually quite well known and have run multiple times. So Fiona Phillips, who's the candidate this time, um, ran for the seat in 2016. 
Um, and she also ran for the um, state seat of South Coast in 2015 as well. Um, so she's run for a few elections in this area. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see if she's been chipping away at the vote over um, the various elections. Um, what, one of the other things that I find interesting about Gilmore itself are just some of the key issues and demographics. Um, so one thing that is a huge issue in Gilmore is um, youth unemployment. Um, so earlier this year, the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence um, released a report on youth unemployment and identified the area, you know, the Shoal Haven as one of um, New South Wales's youth unemployment hotspots. Um, so it, I think youth unemployment was about nearly 30%, which is huge, like considering the average in New South Wales is about 10%. Um, and you kind of combine that with the really low labour force participation rate, so like 46%, um, you know, below the state average, about 65%, plus also having a really old, like a much older population um, so I think the census had the median age of the electorate at 49, whereas the national median is 38. So there's these interesting elements that are coming together where you, you have an issue for youth unemployment, which is going to end jobs, but you also have a significantly older population as well. So I think they, they would definitely be big issues in the election. So, you know, jobs and, you know, anything to do with things like pensions, um, access to social services, healthcare. I mean, it's such an interesting electorate, right? I, it's it's really hard to to spot a bigger issue than than the youth unemployment one, right? Because it's so visible. I mean, it's not far from Canberra. Like the minute we sort of, you know, traipse down the King's Highway towards the coast, you you sort of smack in the middle of Gilmore, and it's um, it's a really evident problem. And I think this is something that sometimes um, sort of census statistics can um, maybe not overlook but not shed much light on. But Gilmore at the moment feels uh, feels like it's in recession. Mm. And so I think there's something really interesting to take from, from, um, from Joanna Gash's loss in the council elections to the Greens that because it's not the kind of response we, we expect from economic downturns that, that voters will turn to a minor party at all, particularly not a minor party like the Greens. Um, and it's something that I think we can maybe expect to see um, to see happen more across the country. I mean, I'm always really hesitant to try to extrapolate too much from one electorate. But I think there's such a distaste for the major parties at the moment that um, – that the kinds of, of dissatisfaction and frustration and and the builds into resentment um, in places like Gilmore will lend itself to the minor parties increasingly. I don't think this is sort of a short-run phenomenon. So, you know, I sort of feel that the Liberal Party can rally around Sudmalis or they like. You know, it'd be nice to think that they're doing that to try to retain some kind of gender equity. I think really what they're seeing is that after Jane Prentice, you know, the idea of... of a white male candidate rolling a female candidate who's been, you know, relatively successful, maybe not a powerhouse, but, you know, has managed to keep their seat is pretty distasteful. So I think it's, you know, pretty cynical on the Liberals' part 
And this is the stuff that just keeps driving voters to, to minor parties and the major parties just seem incredibly oblivious to it. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting in that it's it's become a seat that, like, this this wasn't a seat that the Liberal Party lost when Labor was last in power. You know, this was a seat where it's been held by the Liberals continuously since Gash got elected in 1996. And I think, I mean... It's a bit hard to track this over time, but there certainly has been a bit of a trend where it's not just that this seat has become marginal, but it's become sort of more pro-Labor relative to the rest of the country compared to what it was 20 years ago. And I do wonder if part of that is an economic transformation in this area that it's kind of been a bit left behind. I think there's probably multiple factors. So there's there's obviously the redistribution in 2010 and which moved the seat more northwards. Um, and I, I, one thing we should also mention is that when they redistributed the seat, it was notionally Labor. That's right, yeah. Um, so yeah. so I think we shouldn't discount Joanna Gash's popularity at the time. Yeah. Um, but there's been a few things that have happened in the seat, you know, since then. So they've extended the freeway down past Kayama. It's effectively a place that people who work in Wollongong can commute to. Totally, So yeah. people who have been priced out of Wollongong, priced out of it by people who have been priced out of Sydney live in. Mm. Um, I mean, Kayama is sort of effectively part of the metro region now. Yeah, it's, well, it's the end of the tr- like the train line, yeah. essentially. That's a really good um, point, so you can right? Commute all the way up to Sydney. Um, but just I think going on a few points that uh, you made, Jill. Um, I, I think it's worth remembering that I think the South Coast did have an independent MP, so there is that kind of streak down there. Uh, I think John Hatton was the member for South Coast. Like back in the night, was it the nineties? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, so I think there is that streak there. Um, but I, I really think that one thing which is interesting is that contrast between the popularity of Joanna Gash versus Anne Sudmalis, because they are they are associated with each other. Anne Sudmalis was a councillor, worked for Joanna Gash, mm. um, because I think in. So I, I saw some polling that was done by the ACTU in 2016. Um, so it was just poll, the sort of standard polling key marginal electorates of, you know, union members. And one thing that was interesting is they didn't just poll on issues, but they also polled on, you know, what people thought about their local member. And so there were some who, you know, union members were like, oh, yeah, I don't mind you. Others, they were indifferent to. Um, Sudmalis was amongst the MPs that were explicitly unpopular. Mm. So, you know, even back then, there was a sense that, you know, people don't like her. Um, and I'm not sure I fully understand why she's unpopular, but it definitely is a is a phenomenon of that. And it's clearly affected her the relationships within the Liberal Party as well. Well, I think she also has done a few different things. So mm. I just off the top of my head, like she called the penalty rate cuts a gift to young people. Yeah. And oh. I think I recall that, she, she didn't she part sign a petition against local government amalgamations, which were being done by the New South Wales state government. I, I recall something along those lines. So she's done a few things that have really, um, you know, annoyed a lot of people, um, you know, including the Liberal Party. And yeah. it's kind of no surprise that those sort of there being those internal factional issues around there. At the council election, that you had Sudmalis and Gareth Ward, who's the state MP. Um, pretty openly criticizing each other, and you know, I think they were supporting separate tickets. Yeah, against there was each conflict other in the like conflict on booths, arguments, and that kind of thing. So, so it's not just uh, kind of the left in that area not really liking her, but there's there's some kind of 
there's some kind of division there about uh, within that electorate that um, possibly was going to come up in this pre-selection and was kind of headed off by Turnbull and Morrison. It's a really interesting sort of conflict down there though, right? So someone like Gareth Ward was socialised into politics through liberal student politics and young liberals. It's all very combative and he was a staffer and he was exactly that kind of uh, background of an MP that, you know, it's so easy to deride, but, you know, we're seeing incredibly, um, increasingly commonly. So I think we have to sort of maybe stop deriding it and try to understand it because socialisation of, of, you know, MPs into politics is really important. So Malus and probably even more so Gash before her, I think fascinating in that they take these really contrary stands on things. I remember Joanna Gash being incredibly pro, like, subsidies for ethanol and, and taking all these, like, really, well, from a coalition perspective, really interventionist uh, positions on things that her colleagues just couldn't stand. And I think even... But, but I think that's also... Sorry, did it interrupt you? It's, I think it's because Manildra has a factory down in Nara, which is probably the explanation Yeah, why. okay, that when that would make sense, right? <laughs> But it, it certainly wasn't out of character for her, right? Like, and, and Sue Malis, you know, after her as well, that they are kind of community MPs who, who've come through local council or, you know, in Gash's case, gone back to local council. Um, I think it's a really fascinating kind of contrast between two different types of, of, um, of politicians and the kinds of legislative careers that we're seeing. Um, someone like Gareth Ward and someone like Anne Sudmas are, are just chalk and cheese and and it makes for a great kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to say like fight because it's not quite that exciting, but it's just a really nice like slow-burning tension down there. Well, Gilmore, Gilmore will definitely be an interesting seat to watch. Uh we, you can go to the tally room and check out the guide to Gilmore, and we'll um, we'll post that in the in the notes for this for this episode. Uh, there's there's some maps showing the distribution of the vote across the electorate, and there's a there's a section where you can join the discussion about uh, what's going to happen in that race as as we go as we head into the election, which we think now will probably be next year. Um, but that's about it for this episode. So I'd like to thank both Jill and Osmond for joining me. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode and once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>